the fourth of Romans. May I be permitted to make a few introductory remarks, Brother Campbell? <laughs> I'm going to appeal to your sympathies. This thing of having the responsibility of feeding the flock of God over which you have the oversight is, can be at times, I perhaps should say, very frustrating. Because you make as much provision as you have hours and days to provide for the various lessons that are necessary to the people of God in the Scripture until the point that you don't think you have any days left to provide, and of course there's a certain limitation that's on the people of God as to when they can come and hear, and before you know it, if you have enough lessons, they work all day and go to classes all night. Some of you are sympathetic with that. And so it's very, very frustrating to be able to convey the whole counsel of God as we are responsible to convey it to the great body of the people of God. So you invariably will come to that point when someone will say, and I don't speak particularly hypothetically, although the incident in mind happened a number of years ago, well, why don't we ever have a lesson around here on thus and so? And if they had been in the Bible class one hour earlier, they would have heard it. And when you suggest to them, well, if you'd have been here one hour earlier, you would have heard it, then that's an intrusion on their privacy. So it becomes very, very frustrating. So I said that to say this. It's going to become your responsibility, those of you who are interested in what the book says, and let's face it, a lot of believers are not, it's going to be your responsibility to exhort one another daily. That's why that's in the book. Because some people need exhorting daily. One said, Jim. <laughs> Romans chapter 4. I almost feel like that I'm, you know, I, I use the expression repetition is the price of knowledge because I believe it. It is. Most of us quote the scriptures we can quote because we've heard them quoted so many times, not because we've memorized them. Repetition is the price of knowledge. We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because we sang it in a song sometimes. And I sometimes feel like that the repetition comes to the point of embarrassment, and I almost feel that way this morning, but here we go again. And Jesus said, a good steward out of the treasures of his household bringeth forth things what? Oh, new and old. Well, it's old this morning. All right? How many of you are here? Oh, bless the Lord. You've got 70%. There's another problem, you know. All right, we're looking at Romans 4, but I'm going to back you up to 321. We have to pick this up to set the stage for the lesson. If you have a Schofield Bible, it's, you're on the right page anyhow. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now what God finished in Jesus Christ was borne witness to by the law and by the prophets. The law, you recall, is constituted by the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis through, what's that last one, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law. And the prophets is constituted by those books which exclude the poetic books, 
so that God is saying in simple terms, both the law that is the Pentateuch and all of the prophetic utterances are bearing testimony to the finished work of righteousness in Jesus Christ. In short, everything that the law required of us to be in the presence of God righteous, Jesus Christ has fulfilled. Everything that the prophets demanded of us in terms of walk in righteousness, Jesus Christ has fulfilled. Now, are there any questions about that? We'll see that in a moment. In the one case, the law addresses positional righteousness. In the other case, the prophets address practical or experiential righteousness. And Jesus Christ has fulfilled every demand of both. Now, do you realize the import of that? In the one case, it's easy for us to address positional righteousness in terms of being justified by faith, which we'll have occasion to address. And we establish positional righteousness, and we say, yes, Jesus Christ has forgiven us all sin, and therefore we stand justified in the presence of the Father. But where most of us live, and the point at which most of us stumble, is practical righteousness, isn't it? And again, the prophet's words, all our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. Now, if we can see these things before our sight in one lump, that if we did behave in a righteous manner, it's still before God filthy rags. Now, do we all hear that? If we don't behave before God in a righteous manner, we're condemned. That's just where we live, isn't it? Oh, God must be angry with me. And we go from there into the slew of despond. How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Hello? You remember that? I saw hands going up before I ever got that out. I can tell some of you had. We end up from there in the slew of despond. Some of you are from North Dakota or that area, you know what a slew is. And we think there's no escape from that thing at all, and so we despair of any effort whatsoever to walk with God. So that's where we live the rest of our Christian life, in effect. We come to church on Sunday morning, we go through the motions because that's what we ought to do, and we really have a sincere heart before God, but we have despaired in any way of any hope of ever pleasing God because we have learned by experience that we're not able to hack it, if you would. Well, beloved, the word of the Lord is good news. Now, will we believe it that it's good news? And the good news is that Jesus Christ is satisfied, the Father through Jesus Christ is satisfied for all of your ill performance. It is witnessed by the law, positional righteousness, and by the prophets, practical righteousness. It is the prophet that set the plumb line to everything. And when he got the plumb line up there, and he saw that the building went this way, and the line went this way, he said, it's wrong, fix it. And we said, I've tried to fix it, and every time I fix it, it comes out just as crooked as it was before and down into the slew of despond I go. The good news is God the Father is satisfied in Jesus Christ 
with you. Now the problem with us is we, re we are practical infidels. We have refused to believe the good news. Some of us because of our backgrounds. We were raised in a home where we weren't accepted and so we're absolutely sure God won't. Hello. Or we've never seen what a father ought to be like. There are all manner of ingredients that go in to an inability to recognize that God could be satisfied with us on any basis other than our right performance. But, beloved, let's give God credit for the omniscience that he possesses. He knew what we were before he saved us. He knows what we are after he saved us. And I think he has an idea of how we're going to perform in the future. But he saved us anyhow, if you believe that he did. Hello. So the righteousness of God, do you catch that again? The righteousness of God, not Von Lamb's righteousness, not Art Barley's righteousness, not Ted Campbell's righteousness, not Jimmy Carpenter's righteousness, but the righteousness of God. And nothing less than that will he accept. Dennis Davis does not have a righteousness which he can present before God, which God will accept. There are men who are good to other men. There is in certain men a certain goodness or righteousness which will represent them to other men. But there is no goodness or righteousness in any man which will represent him to God. And Paul said, we, comparing ourselves with ourselves, do not well. We cannot look at the other brother and say, I'm hacking it a little better than he is. I'm, a, I'm not going to say that, Jim. <laughs> I'm trying not to say it, Jim. <laughs> See, your kids in your class got those things too. What I, where was I when I got on that? I'm sorry. Righteousness. Yes. All right. Say again? All right, yes, comparing ourselves. There you are, comparing ourselves with ourselves. You see, we have made the mistake of looking at the other individual and say, well, I'm not quite as bad off as they are. And when I do that, then self-righteousness arises in me, and the very thing I want to accomplish to encourage myself, I have frustrated altogether. Now I recognize that my self-righteousness is a stench in the nostrils of God, and back to the slew of despond they go. So if you're going to search anywhere in your experience for something which God can accept, you may as well lay it down right now, beloved, because God isn't going to be shocked. You're not going to produce it. Now, the prophet of God declared, walk in righteousness. Why did he declare that? Why did the law say, this is what God requires? I'm not preaching. I'm teaching. Am I behaving? Am I behaving? Joy, am I behaving? All right. They tell me behave now when I talk about this, you see. I love them. When the law required, this do and thou shall live, the law was not given, Paul said, to make a man righteous. But why was the law given? What? Well, that's a secondary thing. That the whole world, come on, might become guilty before God. Paul said, by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
The law is a mirror into which you look and you discover your face is dirty, but the mirror has no ability to wash your face. The law was weak through the flesh. Jesus Christ, Paul said, was not made, uh, Hebrews 7, 14, was not made after the law of a carnal commandment. What's wrong with a carnal commandment? It's weak, fleshly, weak, has no ability to perform. That's true of the law God gave. It's the true of the law. It's true of the law that you set up for yourself. So if you set a law up, can you improve on what God gave? Anybody here have a better idea than the Ten Commandments? Well, if you can't improve on that, and God said you couldn't keep that, if that was the ultimate in righteousness before God, and God said, I gave it to make the world guilty before God, to make every man understand that he was a sinner before God, and by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is... for I'll get it out in a minute. I'm, I'm doing it now by the law is the knowledge of sin, then what do I expect to be able to do that will make God accept me? Is there anything? Well, just as the law declared this do and thou shalt live to declare guilt to man, so also the prophet said you've got to do it this way to make manifest the total inability of man. So when you come down with the whole conclusion is I'm sealed up in a bag sold under sin. Those are Paul's words. Now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law said, yes, he did everything exactly as I prescribed it. The prophets look and say, yes, he performed precisely as was required. And they say, we're satisfied. Everything was necessary. He did it. Now, what does God want from us? Same attitude. We're satisfied. Jesus Christ did everything that was necessary. Any questions to this point or comments? Now, I know another thing that happens. And the saints will go out of here and say, well, I wanted to ask him a question, but I just hated to there. I have that happen at Landon's on Thursday night. Well, I wanted to ask you this, but I didn't want to ask you before the crowd. What a pity, because half the crowd's thinking the same thing. The questions work in everybody's mind. If you've got the question, ask it. Will you please do that? Because I'm, I'm recognizing that there is a tremendous philosophy of humanism that prevails in the minds of the people of God. It is that there is some spark of goodness in me which God demands that I fan that will bur burst into this fiery, how shall I say, uh, what? Well, flame of... Uh, of, God, of uh, acceptability, there you go, before God. It's amazing how humanistic believers really are when really they're the ones that are coming out against humanism, rightly so. All right, chapter 4. Now, if you have a question, send up a flare. In the uh, devotions for the high school in thir on Thursday, We've begun to discuss with them, and I so appreciate this about the young people, they'll tell you exactly how they feel about something, most of them. And we have been discussing some of the problem questions that arise about the security of the believer. I think two, three weeks ago we started that. And just raising questions. And you know, when you get away from a lesson like this and you get home with it and somebody says, well, I wonder what he'd do with this verse. Or how would he explain that? 
I know Ted Campbell down here has been approached from time to time with a verse. Someone, it's almost as though someone is suggesting that he never even read that before. Well, did you know this verse was in the Bible? There are a lot of people, beloved, that have spent a lot of hours pursuing the issue of the relationship of the children of God in Christ by his righteousness, his justification. And it just seems un unfortunate that a lot of those questions that are hanging in our minds never get asked. Well, I've got to get on. Romans 4, did I say that several times? What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? You're moving over, please, to verse 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the, of the man. Now, what is he doing? Back in chapter 3, he said the righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Do you notice what he's just done? He's pulled a witness out of the law, and he's pulled a witness out of the prophets. you see that? He said, all right, you want to hear what the law and the prophets have to say? I'll give you a couple of fellows that come out of the law and the prophets and let them speak their mind. Abraham's out of the law, and David is out of the prophets. Acts 2, you remember, said David was a prophet. Prophecies run abundantly through the Psalms. So Abraham, what has Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh found? Now, what is the flesh again? Weakness. The flesh is weakness. What is it not? Come on. See, repetition, price, knowledge. Not sin. The flesh is not sin. The flesh is weakness. Again, may I quote it from Hebrews 7? Jesus Christ was not made after the law of a fleshly commandment. Was the commandment sinful? Paul said it was holy and just and righteous and good. The law is spiritual, Paul said. So how could it be sinful? It isn't. But is it weak? Oh boy, is it weak. It says, this do and thou shalt live. But it gives me absolutely no ability to perform. The law was weak through the flesh. It could not perform. It could command, it could do nothing. So what is it that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? You know why these guys like for me to teach during this time? Because I have to quit at 10.30. They're encouraged by that. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath some of, some, I'm trying to read the King James and it's translated different, something of which to glory, but not before God. Remember what we said a moment ago? There are good things in men which can represent themselves, represent them to other men. But there is no good thing in any man that can represent him to a holy God. So if Abraham is justified by works, he can glory, but not before God. He might boast before men, but not before God. He might speak to his own righteousness, and certainly to the disdain of some other individual, but he could say nothing before God, for all of his righteousness is Verse 3, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, imputed to him, reckoned to him. It is a bookkeeping term. Where's all our accountants? It is a Job, bookkeeping term, yes? You reckon that, you impute that to your account. It was imputed, his faith was imputed to Abraham for righteousness. Now, if he had it, why impute it? But he didn't have it, so it was necessary that it be imputed. So Abraham believed God, and God reckoned righteousness to Abraham because of his faith. Now, is that so difficult to grasp? How many of you here believe God? 
Well, we got a few of you going to heaven. That's the only way. You got any other program, it won't work. <clears throat> Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. <clears throat> now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you're working, you owe God something, or he owes you something. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now we've got two different Greek words here that are translated righteousness. I want to flip you over to chapter 5 very quickly, if I may, and read another because it's, I think, the most plainly pronounced and the translation is different. They both come from the same Greek word, root. They are different forms of the same root, 5-1. Therefore, and what's the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore follows chapter 4. That's where we are. It is the bridge of faith that, that, links, that uh, links me to God that carries me from my total depravity in chapter 3, none that seeketh after God, none righteous, no, not one, to my relationship with God in Christ in chapter 5. Therefore, there is, I'm sorry, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May I parenthetically make a distinction between peace with God, peace from God, and the peace of God. A lot of us don't think we have peace with God because we don't feel the peace of God. Hello? Is that possible? The peace of God is something that you experience in the face of difficulty. You don't even have to ask for it. It's already there. Peace from God is the peace you get when you face a turmoil. You feel tumultuous and you say, Lord, give me peace, and God gives you peace. That's the peace from God. Jesus in the boat when the storm was on had the peace of God. He was asleep. The disciples didn't. But when they woke him up and he said peace to the sea, they got peace from God because the sea calmed. Do we see that? But the peace with God is something that you enjoy even when you don't know that you have it. Peace with God is a cancellation of hostilities between the believing sinner and the God of all glory. Are you there? It is as though you had a peace treaty signed, unconditional surrender was given in a warfare, and some of the soldiers didn't know it. You remember about four or five years ago, they found a Japanese uh, soldier in one of these islands in the South Pacific that had been there hiding for 30 years, and he was still fighting the war. How many of you remember that? There's a fellow you see that didn't know that he had peace with the United States. Do you see that? And there are numerous believers who don't know they have peace with God. But peace with God is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ. So therefore, being justified by faith, the end result of that is the war is over. God isn't mad at you anymore. Can you believe that? And some of you sitting there thinking, he's got every reason in the world to be mad at me. Yeah, beloved, but you're not in the world. You're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. There's the big distinction. Yes, ma'am. And some of you sitting there thinking, he's got every reason in the world to be mad at me. Yeah, beloved, but you're not in the world. You're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. There's the big distinction. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Peace with God is the cancellation of hostilities between the believing sinner and the God of all glory. All right. And that is obtained by faith. By faith. All right. Now, the word justified... The Greek word in chapter 5 and verse 1 
points to what is positional. What is positional? Now back up with me to chapter 4. The thing that we're facing is, when I don't behave right, how does God view that? Now quite obviously, beloved, God doesn't like sin. It sent his son to the tree. Yes? Can we all agree with that? Our problem is that we are seeing sin as strung out over an extended time period and points of acts or pointed acts of sin which we commit, which we see as offensive to God. Now what we're going to have to grasp if we're going to thoroughly or begin to thoroughly understand the righteousness of God as it's revealed in Jesus Christ, God's righteousness imputed to us, the first thing we're going to have to understand is God doesn't live in time. God lives in eternity. And I hope we all understand that as far as God is concerned, this thing's already finished. Now we're experiencing it in terms of time. But as God views the program, he knows the end from the beginning. Do we believe that? So when Jesus Christ died for sin, he died for all sin, past, present, oh, he died for what you haven't gotten to yet. Now if he didn't, redemption is only good to today. And if redemption is only good to today, then we haven't got anything better under the new covenant than they had under the old covenant because every year under the old covenant, the high priest went in and made a new atonement for sin. That was called the day of atonement. It'll fall this Thursday. And Yom Kippur, God said, was a remembrance every year of sin. And every time the high priest went in, there was a remembrance of sin expiation was made once more, atonement, I'm sorry I'll be more specific, atonement was made till next year. But when Jesus Christ came, Christ died once for the sin of the world. It is finished. Yes, ma'am. Then there is no atonement for the for the year coming provided for them, and from their point of view, if there was no atonement, there is no redemption. So they are hopelessly lost. Yes. Now, that's under the law, under the law. Now, you raise another issue, which we really can't take time to address right here, but, but the Jew who understood the heart of God, like David, for example, David knew. You remember in the 51st Psalm, how marvelously a man like this encourages us. Even out of that day, under the rigors of the law, he understood the heart of God. And a lot of believers don't today, tragically. And you remember when David had sinned with Bathsheba? Well, we'd have done him in for that, for sure, wouldn't we? When David sinned with Bathsheba, the critical thing was he didn't hide it. See, Saul didn't do nearly as bad a thing as far as the individual deed was concerned that David did, but Saul hid it. He said, I've sinned, but honor me now before the people. Don't tell anybody about it. Make me look religious. Sacrifice for me, Samuel. So he did. He said, you can have what you want, but he lost the crown. But David, after the sin, after he, and by the way, neither one of them confessed. Both of them had to be found out. You do remember that. Samuel came to Saul. Nathan came to David. Neither one of them came out on their own. Both of them had to be faced up with it. And when Saul was faced up with it, he said, don't tell anybody. When David was faced up with it, he recorded it for all Israel and all the world to read because the word of the Lord endures forever. Yes? 
in the 51st Psalm. And you remember his words? Sacrifice, I'm sorry, um, sacrifice and whole burnt offering thou dost not desire, else I would bring it. Now, isn't that interesting? Because the law demanded it. Yes? Is that right? The law absolutely demanded the sacrifice for that sin, but David said, Lord, that's not really what you want. You see, David understood the heart of God. He understood that atonement or not, God did not meet people by the sacrifice, for by the blood of bulls and goats it was impossible to take away sin, Paul said. David understood that, and a lot of men in his day didn't. But David said, Lord, that's not really what you want. Really what you want is a broken and a contrite spirit. And he said, that's what I'm going to bring. Who kept the crown? You see. So there are a lot of other things to be pointed to in that as well. Would to God that the believers today, as our prophet did in the fourth chapter, we haven't got to it yet, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord will not impute sin. Same man said that. See, he understood something of how God responds to the man that has a heart for him. Not that performs right, but has a heart for him. All right. Now we want to look then to that experiential behavior. If then Jesus Christ has died for all sin of all the world, past, present, and future, and he's even died for the sin I haven't gotten to yet, then God is satisfied for the sin that I haven't committed. Now I'm going to say this right here, perhaps to appease some and warn others. I'm not really sure why I'm saying it. To satisfy some of those who'd rather I wouldn't talk about this. Maybe that's why I'm saying it. I'm almost not behaving, so I'll start behaving again. But I'm going to go ahead and say it anyhow. Some people will be concerned at this point that you are giving license to believers to go just raise hell, if you would. Now, I want to know if there's anybody in this meeting this morning that wants to go out and sin against God. I haven't got a hand. Now, let me ask you another question. Is there anybody in here that from time to time feels like going out and sinning against God? There is a big difference. Because God has wrought a work in your heart that changes your whole attitude towards sin. And Paul said, the things that I would do, I do not. And the things that I would not do, those things I do. So you show me a man that wants to sin, and I'll show you a liar and hypocrite. He's never been to the fountain. He's never tasted of grace. He is not born of the Spirit. He is playing religion. And you can get him all cleaned up on the outside, and he'll look like the most pristine believer you ever saw in your life, hallelujah, and he'll go to hell. Because all of his righteousness is filthy rags. And God is changing hearts. And if you want to change a man's believer, you better, uh, man's, say a word for me, behavior, you better get to his heart first. Because you do what you are. You aren't what you do. Well, it would be a lot of people in hell if they were what they did. A lot of people in what's the other place? Heaven. If they were what they did. We get on with it. Verse 5. So then, to him that worketh not, to the one who is not out there trying to be sure that he gets it all together and does it all right in order to go to heaven, to him that worketh not. Boy, you're saying a dangerous thing there, Paul. You're going to give people license to sin if you're not careful but believeth on him that justifieth the who? Oh, my. 
ungodly people go to heaven? It's the only kind. Righteous people go to hell. His faith is counted for righteousness. Oh, now we got another word. Same root word, different usage. Now he is addressing righteous acts. Some of you Greek scholars pick up your Greek concordance and run this word, and you'll observe that it is used almost consistently with respect to right behavior. So what is he saying? He is saying that Abraham was counted righteous in his works as well. His behavior, his faith was counted for righteous acts or righteous behavior. Do you see that? In the one case, his faith justified him in the presence of God, and he stood in righteousness. And in the other case, his faith caused his righteous, I'm sorry, caused his behavior to come before the Lord as fulfilled in righteousness. Well, that doesn't mean he did it all right. Did Abraham always do it all right? He didn't. He did a little lying. Hello? Hmm? Uh, he, uh, uh, some people would call it backsliding. I don't have any problem with the word backsliding. Somebody says, well, that's an Old Testament experience. Well, it's a New Testament activity, anyhow. <laughs> he he uh, denied the faithfulness of God and took off to Egypt. Hello? I mean, there's a lot of neat little things there, but probably the classic one is God said to Abraham that he was going to give him a seed which would inhabit and possess the land of Canaan. Well, of course, years went by and nothing happened. He was enduring long. And then Sarah made a suggestion. Now, don't you jump on Sarah with both feet, bless your heart. She was waiting just like Abraham was, and it was Sarah that was suffering the reproach of being barren, not Abraham. That reproach fell on the woman, not on the man. And she was getting a little anxious about that thing. And she says to Abraham, why don't you take Hagar, my handmaid? Now, under Eastern law, that was a perfectly legitimate action. Is that right, historian? Perfectly legitimate action for Abraham to give to Sarah, Hagar, her handmaid, and Abraham take her to wife. And legally, any seed born of Hagar belongs to Sarah. So Abraham took Hagar to wife, and the seed that was born of that unfaithful union has been a thorn in the flesh to the children of Israel to this present day. Who are they? The Arabs. So that unfortunate scheme there was a case of if a man sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. Somebody's forever thrown that verse at me. Well, Brother Lamb, if a man sows to the flesh, he's going to flesh reap corruption. Yeah, but where's it say he's going to hell? Hello? And Abraham reaped corruption. And the Jews to the present day are reaping corruption because of Abraham's sowing to the flesh. Weakness. Do you follow that? And then God comes along, <coughs> pardon me, 13 years later, and he says, all right, Abraham, now I'm going to do what I said. I imagine that was embarrassing. Hello? Why didn't Abraham say, oh, Lord, I've already taken care of that. Now, Abraham, I'm going to do what I said. And Abraham laughed. And Sarah, in the tent door, laughed. Hello? My, they were strong in faith, giving glory to God. Well, that's what the New Testament says. Doesn't it? Well, why does the New Testament say that when there he is back there laughing in unbelief? Sarah back there laughing in unbelief because no sin of any Old Testament saint has ever reiterated this side of the cross. 
The cross is the great eradicator of sin, period. And God doesn't see it. That's good news. But that's the only basis you're going to make it, beloved. You got anything else in mind, skip it, because that's the only way you're going to get there, by the cross. And Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I am crucified on the world, and the world is crucified unto me. Hallelujah. So you're here, but you don't live here. Your citizenship's in heaven. You're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. So his faith is counted for right behavior. So when you fall flat on your face, understand, beloved, that Jesus Christ did it right. You did it wrong, but he did it right. Hallelujah. Now verse 6. Even as David also described the blessedness, this is a quote, of course, from Psalm 32, described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness apart from works. Can you believe that? And I don't speak that term lightly. Can you believe that? Well, you see, if you do believe that, you stay in the righteousness of God. God imputes righteousness apart from works. You don't have to do it right to be right. Are you there? Verse 7, saying, here's the quote, Blessed are those, some have translated happy, well, I realize what's intended to be conveyed in the word happy, and perhaps that's helpful to some, but happiness depends on happenings. Joy and blessedness does not. It's predicated on something someone else has done. Most believers are walking in joy when all of their environmental and economic circumstances dictate that's the way to act. But the blessedness of the man or the joys of the man, if you would, are predicated on something they know to be the case in total contradiction, perhaps, of their total environment and experience. That's why you seem so irresponsible to some people in this world system. Why aren't you worried about all that's happening? Go on, get worried. Make them feel better. <laughs> Jesus said, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, irresponsible totally irresponsible, don't care about all the difficulties of the world. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Oh, it's going to come out right. Hmm? You don't believe that. You really believe it's going to come out right. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose lawlessnesses are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Now, he's quoting from an Old Testament text. Thus the word covered is used. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Do you get the import of that? May I phrase it another way? Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not reckon guilty of sin. Do you catch that? Keep your finger there and come back with me to 2 Corinthians again. I'll stir up your pure minds by way of a little more remembrance. But let me pick up from verse 17, since it's a lovely verse. Oh, I'm sorry, 5. I'm so sorry. 
You see, I've quoted it so much, I figured you'd know where it was anyhow. It wouldn't have made any difference. 517, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I want you to stop and reflect for just a moment. When you came into Christ by faith, I wanted to know if everything that you did, thought, and were became new. Nobody's answering. Well, my experience was that it didn't. Hello? Nobody else in that case. Read verse 18. And all things are of God. Oh, is everything in your life of God? Come on now. Oh. Then I would suggest to you, beloved, that God's view towards you is not predicated on what you are or what you do. It is predicated on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's looking at. And that is why, and I'm not through with this text, so don't go away from it there. And that is why then, when the children of Israel, and my, what a profound illustration God would give us in this of our relationship of God in Christ, as the children of Israel were sojourning across the desert, stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, wake up, kid. As the children of Israel were sojourning across the desert, they had hired Balak, I'm sorry, uh, Balak had hired Balaam to curse them because they saw that all the nations were falling before them wherever they went, and Balak says, I'm next. And so he went out and hired the hireling prophet Balaam, and he took Balaam up on the mount, and he said, curse that people for me. And I'm trying to make a long story short because you remember he had three little episodes there, and Balaam looked out over the children of Israel. I see that hand. Balaam looked out over the children. Trent said, it's time to quit. Balaam looked out over the children of Israel, and he said, I see no sin in Israel. I see no perversity in Jacob, and the shout of a king is among them. Israel? Is he looking at the right people? You heard the story, I'm sure, about that black woman who was at the funeral of her husband with her little boy next to her, and the preacher was going on lauding the virtues of her husband in that coffin, and she turned down her little boy and says, go see if that's your daddy in that thing up there. And you hear God say that about that bunch of people, and you look around at Balaam, and you look back at that people, and you say, you got the right people in mind? I see no sin in Israel. Why was that? Because God was viewing them through the atoning blood, and God saw no sin. I read on. Verse 18, and all things are of God. Why are they of God? who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to it. This is what you're supposed to be telling people. This is the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, to it that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God refuses to impute sin, to reckon sin to the believing sinner. Have to take it up with him. It was his choice. Boy, was it ever his choice. And I won't talk about that now. All right, Trent says I'm through. I really am through. It's 32 past. I thought it was 30 past. Anyone have any questions? I have to quit now, you see. They really are out to keep me in line. Put him in here now. Any questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. Pardon? I'm going to get uh, stoned, Joe. 
All right, by his grace, we'll look at it yet further in the future. Bless you.